Okay, for those on the tape here, we forgot to start the recorder. We're talking about the Exodus illusions in Acts 12, 8 through 9, and how the angel telling uh, Peter to gird himself, put on sandals, and follow me, get out of here, and go quickly, is an allusion to back at Exodus. So go ahead. Yeah, and Bob, I, I love this connection. The Exodus motif seems to be in a backdrop to the New Testament. And one of the reason, areas that we see this, for example, remember Israel is baptized through the Red Sea. Where do they go? They go into the wilderness for 40 years. Well, Jesus is baptized. And where does he go right after? Well, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Well, he succeeds where they failed. He's the true Israel. He's the true son. Yep. But you look at um, the connections Bob's making here. You look at um, Revelation chapter 12. Remember, Israel is going to be brought out on another exodus. They're brought out on two wings, it says, the wings of an eagle, just like they were at the first exodus. That's the, the illusion that oh, God Oh, yeah, I brought, I brought you to... The wings uh, of an eagle. Eagle's wings. Yep. And that was Sinai. Exactly, at Sinai. And then he nourishes them where? From the presence of the Antichrist. The bread. He nourishes them in the wilderness. And so you see a second exodus. So in a sense, all of us are on this second exodus. We had our Passover lamb. We applied by faith the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of our heart. We are passed over from God's wrath. We're in the wilderness now, and we're on the way to the promised land. Okay, so we don't want to fall in the wilderness like they did. Yeah. So why do we have the means of grace that Bob has been teaching us for all these years? So that we persevere through the wilderness land, the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And so. it isn't just in Luke Acts. Exactly. John does the same thing. I'm yeah. glad you mentioned it. And so does, well, Hebrews is like the mother load. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, man, Hebrews is so fantastic. But in John 6, the grumbling is brought up. And uh, in John 6, they grumble in the wilderness about bread. And in the Old Testament, they grumble. And this, the Greek Old Testament uses gongudzo as the Greek word for grumble, to grumble. It's used in John 6, and it's used in the Old Testament. Go for it. Hey, uh, I'll grant you the Exodus is, is a, a far better uh, example of the illusion, but could you not also say that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is a an example of that as well, where the angels said, get, to, up to get out. Yeah. Yeah. And the difference with Sodom and Gomorrah would be uh, he wasn't that excited about leaving. He had to almost be drug out of there, but he did get out. That's a good point. The angel brought him out. So, Exodus, yes, Lonnie. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make a comment about Eric here with the mic, his comment about uh, using the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And I was talking to you last week, uh, Pastor Bob, about the early Christians, the first century Christians, um, they used pretty much the Old Testament because that's pretty much all they had. They used the Septuagint, and they looked at all the prophecies in there, and that was their Bible. And the other types of Jews, uh, the Orthodox Jew or whatever you want to call it, looked at the same scriptures, and all they could see is the law. But the uh, okay. uh, Messianic... Uh, 
uh, Christians, the, the new Jewish Christians, first century Christians, they looked at the Septuagint and they saw how it related to them. It was prophecy fulfilled. Well, let, let me uh, comment on that, and maybe Eric has something to add. Actually, both things happened. In other words, according to the book of Hebrews, for example, and according to Jesus' debate, debates with the Jewish leaders who rejected him, the, the, the New Testament sees both things happening, the grumbling and the unbelief and the apostasy are prefigured in the old. And the faith, the deliverance, the being brought on eagle's wings and the chains falling off and going out of prison, that happens too. So Hebrews really deals with this magnificently. But you have the remnant who believe the promises of God, the Joshua people and so on. And you have the rest who are grumbling. And we're going to raise up somebody else. And Lonnie, there was a debate about who speaks for God. This is brought up in Hebrews, and it's in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers. But remember those people that were complaining that Moses spoke for God? Why do we have to listen to Moses? See, they took it as no important thing that God was the one who took, chose Moses, and that God appeared to Moses on Sinai, and that God gave him the ten words, says in Hebrew, and that Moses was ordained by God to speak for him. And we're saying that the Mount of Transfiguration shows that Jesus is the one who appointed apostles, and Jesus speaks for God. So it's Moses and the prophets, Jesus and the apostles. Now, in the Old Testament, the same thing happened. Well, why Moses? We're going to do it ourselves. Uh, how did that work out? Do you want to comment on that at all, Eric, about the ones that wouldn't listen to Moses? They want to do it their way? Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. I was thinking in Matthew 23, Jesus likens the unbelief in those who killed the prophets to the Pharisees. And so um, Bob has actually written a whole article about this, the phrase, this generation. This generation is a pejorative, not referring to a 40-year window of time of people that lived then, but characterizing all unbelief, those who always reject what God's spokesmen have said as prophets. And so Jesus links the unrighteousness and the unbelief from all of those who rejected the Old Testament prophets with those who were doing it in Jesus' day. And so that's a continuation that we see, too, of this unbelief. And I also mentioned just with the Septuagint, Lonnie, I wouldn't say it's just the Septuagint. I think it's the Masoretic text as well. Yeah. However, you are correct in that oftentimes the apostles would cite from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And I'll be showing an example of that. Uh, and I, I did it in the Revelation where you have the allusion to Daniel 2.28 and Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. I'll be showing you that today. And Bob has talked a lot about that. But I just want to make it clear that it wasn't just the Septuagint. The yeah. Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, also yeah. would have pointed people to Messiah. It so. still had the same information. And um, I would say this about it, and there's some debates but we're not saying that all the Septuagint was directly inspired. We're not claiming that. Some people have, but that's not true. 
but it was well translated. And they actually had a myth about it that I'll tell you about some other time. But um, the fact is, the New Testament authors use it because Greek was the one language that you could preach and then everybody would understand you in the Roman Empire, whether they're, because most of the Jews were Hellenistic. And, the, and so they could use that language and preach to the whole world without anybody being in the dark. And so the whole, and that's why we, we're, we know English, so we preach in English. And we do a lot of work, make sure we get it right. So we know the languages. Eric knows Hebrew and Greek. I, I know Greek. And we are able to do that. Now, back to these analogies. Both things happened all the time. All the time. The, when God comes on the scene, I can't remember if I, I think I wrote an article about this. When God comes on the scene in a unique theophany, in a powerful manifestation like he did at Sinai, two things happen. Salvation and judgment. Both things happen. When Jesus came, salvation and judgment. Light and darkness. And God coming makes the sin of those who won't listen to him all the more egregious. And Jesus said that. Uh, some of the notorious sinners, he said, I think this is in Matthew 10, or is it Matthew 11? Somebody, I'm always open to being corrected. Uh, either 10 or 11, remember? He said, woe to you, Chorazin, because in Messiah, because it had the miracles that happened there, happened too, and then he mentions notorious sinners in the Old Testament, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus did greater things than Moses and more powerful miracles. And he's God the Son. Moses was a man appointed by God, but yet a sinner who needed forgiveness. Jesus was sinless. And they rejected the miracles of the Old Testament. And now they're rejecting Jesus. Go ahead. You're correct. It's Matthew eleven twenty. Matthew 11, okay. See, I said 10 or 11, so I couldn't be wrong, right? <clears throat> All right. So, we have an illusion. We have God at work. It's also the same thing now under the new covenant. Now that the gospel is proclaimed to all the earth by God's grace, there's salvation and there's judgment. There's enlightenment and there's hardening. And we're warned not to harden our hearts as they did in the day of provocation in the book of Hebrews. And we have greater evidence, greater reason to believe, a greater uh, revelation of God's character and purpose. And Moses is greater than, I mean, Jesus is greater than Moses. And he's come. Now look what happens. So the light came into the dungeon, chains fall off. Peter's awakened. He's told to go in haste, and they come out. Now, remember, this is heavily guarded. This is a miracle. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. Does that normally happen? No. They weren't going to let him out. Isn't there a little bit 
this, in my mind, anyhow, I don't know if it's intended. Remember how they wanted to make sure Jesus' dead body didn't get out of the tomb? And they went to great lengths and seal it, put guards. That deceiver is saying he's going to be raised from the dead, and we want to make sure he doesn't get by with it, so we want that body in that tomb, and we want it to stay there. What happened? He got out. And let, let me make an analogy on that. People, and I've debated some recently on the Internet, they're saying that if we want a revival and a lot of people to come to faith, we've got to learn how to do great miracles, as if we could learn to do a miracle by going to school. And they offer schools for the prophets where you can go and learn to do miracles. But if, if a miracle is an engineering feat, it's not a miracle. But their theology is God is trying to do it, but he can't because we're so stupid. He can't use us. But if we get with these elitists, then the miracles all suddenly happen. And they say, well, if that happens, then all these people are going to be saved. We're going to have the greatest revival that ever happened. But they're not even reading history well. Greater miracles did not produce faith. And one of the evidences that I've used when writing about this is the guards in the book of Matthew, they were guarding the tomb. And they were about as close as anybody to the scene of what happened at that tomb. What happened with those guards? Because they knew they were in trouble. It was their job to make sure he stayed in there dead. He didn't. We had angels. He came out. He appeared to witnesses. They were willing to take money to lie to say the disciples stole the body. But, of course, nobody ever could produce a body. Now, if it's true, that the only thing that's keeping everybody from coming to Christ is a lack of seeing more miracles. Why didn't those guards come to faith? Did the guards think that Jesus wasn't really raised? No, they thought that he was. So how they knew he was. They knew better than the disciples did because they were closer to the scene. At the time, the disciples had to find out. And they were willing to take money to lie that Jesus wasn't really raised? What does that say about those guards? It's they're hardened because of sin. Like the people who made the golden calf. We're putting that up, by the way, on a video on YouTube for CIC. But um, weren't they there when they came through the sea? Weren't they there when all the fire and thunder and Moses going up on Sinai and all these things are happening? Did they really believe that golden calf is what did it? No. Why do people like golden calves? Because you can control them. God is scary. He might judge us. The golden calf, if we don't like him, we'll just melt him down and make him into a golden kitty. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever we want to do with it. Now, 
the guards knew what was going on, but their hearts are hardened. So I would agree with that hymn in regard to theology. I think there is an analogy of the chains falling off, the the dungeon filling with light, and going forth and following Christ is really analogous to conversion. And the darkness, and Paul, Paul was told that by Jesus in Acts 26, 18. He recounts how Jesus told him that. The people would go from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. And that's a miracle. And before knowing Christ, we are in darkness and we would rather have the golden calf any day. Because the golden calf doesn't give laws. The golden calf is safe. Yes. Christy. Um, we talked a little bit about this after the class last week, but the whole idea um, of following and is, is coming out in all of the different passages and allusions you're talking about. And I kind of just have a little summary. In Exodus, they, um, they, when they were called out, they followed the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. In John, Jesus called the disciples to follow him, Jesus himself. In Acts, they were to follow, or he, Peter was to follow the angel of the Lord out. And now I think we can look at that as a church and we're to follow God's word. That's what we have. We don't have the, the physical manifestations right now, but I don't know if that would summarize we still, Yeah, that. that's true. We have the same thing set in front of us. Who are we going to follow? And, uh, and salvation, dear ones, is being rescued. And we're not just being rescued from a lack of self-esteem. As Dr. Schuler had said back in his day, we're not being rescued from a lack of purpose, as Rick Warren says. We're not have, being rescued from not having our best life just yet. As Joel Osteen said, we're being rescued from sin and darkness and the wrath of God against sin. And if we don't describe the problem biblically, we don't describe salvation biblically either. This is a miracle of going from bondage to Satan to the light of Christ. I see somebody wants to say something. Uh, I was just thinking about uh, both Moses and Jesus, how they performed all the signs in front of people, and, and people's hearts were hardened. I mean, at the end of 40 years, why was it? It was before the 40 years. I can't remember when Caleb and Joshua, but anyways, you know, only two people really stood up in, in Moses, and Jesus the same way. I mean, they put him to death, and, you know, people were sad about that, but... I think it really shows how it's God's continuing grace that saves people. It's like uh, David, you know, he said, the Lord is my shepherd. And like in the New Testament, you know, we can't, I don't know, it's, it's him that, that's work, continuing to work in us to believe. It's him that's his continuous yeah. grace. So it, it's God's doing that, that we're in Christ. You're right. And see, we should attribute everything to the grace of God. And this idea that you can change the what salvation means to make it more American. Okay. How to succeed and how to solve all your problems and how to be happy. That's downplaying it. 
There are a lot of happy, successful people. Somebody rebuked me on the Internet for saying that there are unsafe people who are happy. And I wrote back, and I had to defend that claim. There are people who have written me, a guy who used to be a pastor who became an apostate, renounced Christ, renounced Christianity, embraced atheism, and says, because one of our, somebody from that was in our church back then gave him my article on apostasy. And he said, well, I know your friend there is just well-meaning, but it's okay. I'm not mad. Just don't, don't bother me because I'm happy now that I got rid of Christ. He said, I, I've become wealthy. I've got a great family. We go on cruises and we've got everything we need. And it was so good to get rid of religion. So people are happy in the human sense of it. And sometimes people lament who are Christian, but we have something greater than just temporary emotional happiness that we get when our team wins the World Series or something like that. We have an enduring joy that comes from the Lord, the Holy Spirit, a peace that passes understanding, a knowledge that God has not only saved us from our wretched, imprisoned condition, but is bringing us all the way to himself in eternity, and that he will keep us, and that our faith and our joy isn't in ourselves, or is it in some secret, but it's in God himself, who says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. What shall man do unto me? And, and that's, that's greater than temporary emotional happiness. So the angel departed from him, and when Peter came to himself, okay, the gates open, he goes out. Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people who were uh, all the Jewish people were expecting. So they expect he'd come out and he'd be the next martyr when Herod would bring him out at the high point of the feast. And it would be like it was with Jesus when they said, crucify him, crucify him. We're going to please the people. Remember that? Herod, the, other, the previous Herod just kind of washed his hands. Find no guilt in this man. Let his blood be on you. Okay, we'll take it. Give us the guilt. We like it. That's what was going on. So, what a great analogy of salvation. The chains fall out. The dungeon fills with light. And we go forth and we follow him. And I thank God for that. Now, switching topics for a second, more in a second, the rest of the class. I got a, a great question from our, one of our remote followers in the sense that they watch the sermons. I've talked to both of them different times on the phone, a couple from the East Coast that love to, to hear the truth. And so they sent me a question. And because I had gotten a book that was challenging um, my belief, somebody sent me a book basically rebuking 
people who believe that grace alone or however you understand monergism. So all of this happened about the same time. So here's a couple who are reading a verse and they sent me an email. Here's the verse if you want to turn to it. Oh, I have it up here. 1 Timothy 4.10. For this end we toll and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people especially those who believe. And this man and his wife said, this appears very perplexing. And they said, and I can see how people might be confused. Isn't God the Savior only of those who believe not all people? Very great. I love great questions. Now, in theology, this question is about the extent of atonement. And there's been this um, tulip thing that was created in church history that has an L that says limit, limited atonement. So that really sparks a lot of interesting debates. And I've written about that. So I wrote a response to the couple and they were so pleased with the explanation. They suggested that I read it to the church and so I don't want you to just have to sit and listen to my email, but let's interact with some ideas anyhow. I cited this verse. Here's what I said earlier in the same book. Paul wrote this. 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. And John wrote this, I quote 1 John 2, 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, the reason this comes up in church history was that there was this statement made um, by some who have written theology saying the atonement is limited to those who are predestined, who are the elect. And then some have gone even further and said, God loves the elect and he hates everybody else. So there's not only a denial about how the extent of the atonement, but about the extent of God's love for mankind. Now, let me comment on that, and I'll read a little bit of what I said to them. There have been many debates about this in church history, and some have created categories to put these things into. There's the debate about limited atonement and so forth. Some even teach universalism, that all are saved. That's emergent. Others teach that all are saved until they hear the gospel and refuse to receive Christ. I got an email about that this week. Some guy who was a popular evangelist in the 20th century or teacher claimed that you're not lost until you actually hear Christ and then reject the gospel. And this person cited whoever that I think it was a guy named McGee that had said that. So I thought, 
what? And I don't know if that's even a correct thing, a correct citation. So I wrote back, said, if you really believe that, you would never send out a missionary. Everybody in the world saved until you preach Christ and then they can become lost. And I, I, I sent that to my daughter who does CIC for us. And she said, yeah, why would you ever preach the gospel if you think everybody's saved until they hear the gospel and reject it? The reason we are sent is because we believe people are lost. They need to hear about Christ to be saved. But this sort of dumb stuff has been sad. And it's out there and it confuses everybody. Okay, let's, let's go on. If we, if we, um, here's what I said. If we allow what is clearly taught to help us with 1 Timothy 4.10... We will conclude that only those who believe are saved and that the universal call of the gospel is also true. No one is to be excluded from the call to trust on Christ for salvation. Let me reemphasize that point. What separates, I believe, valid theology on this from what might be called hyper-Calvinism is the profundity of the universal call. If we preach that, that all are called to come to Christ, all are called to believe, all are called to trust him for forgiveness of sins, and let me say this, Jesus said, the one that comes to me I will no wise cast out. There's never, ever going to happen that somebody says, oh, dear Lord, forgive me. I've sinned against you. I believe that you, that you died for sins once for all. The just or the unjust cleanse me. I want to trust in you. And then the answer is, I ran out of atonement. <laughs> We're out. It all got used up. There ain't any more atonement. Do you think that's going to happen? No. It's, it's absurd. Okay? There's not going to be somebody lost because there wasn't enough atonement. Now, a way of saying this is accurate. Now, remember when people become emotional and partisan, nothing satisfies them. It's like politics that way. When people are partisan and driven by emotion, it doesn't matter what you say. If you don't think, if they don't think you're on their side, they're going to hate it. It doesn't matter. But emotions are not a good source for Christian theology. All right? Here's the deal. Some have said, and I think correctly so, the atonement is sufficient for all and efficient for those who believe. That gets rid of universalism, that you're saved just because you're a human being, or a narrow-minded view that because we are us, I know that's probably not correct grammatically. Somebody tell me what the correct is. We are we? How do you say that? I always say we are us, but I don't think it's right. I, I think you're actually right with we are we because it's a it would be a predicate nominative because you have the uh, 
the verb of being are, but it sounds strange, so we yeah. would say we are. Well, I was on the radio one time, I said that, and then uh, the radio, my co-host said, I think it's supposed to be we are we, but it doesn't sound very good. It's not as dramatic. Well, because we are who we are, therefore we're the elect because God only loves us. It's really a bad attitude. It's, it's absurd. Okay? So I don't think, I wouldn't apologize for saying sufficient for all, efficient for those who believe. And we're always just pushing the argument back a little bit anyhow. But let me go on. They actually liked my answer, so um, thought it would help some people. Let me continue what I said. Many of the ideas that show up in church history are driven by philosophy or religious tradition. If we stick with what Christ and his apostles told us, okay, let's decide that. We're going to stick with what Christ and his apostles told us. We know that we are to preach Christ to all people. Are we agreeing? We must do this because all sinners are dead in their sin and without God and without hope in this world, which would be the universal sin nature, which we learn in Ephesians. We're dead. You were dead, Ephesians 2. Then I continue, but God uses the message of the gospel to save people out of that horrible, hopeless condition. We must preach Christ to all and call all to repent and believe. If they do, it was because God brought his light into their darkness and his life into their spiritually dead condition. That's what we just learned by the jail analogy. The dungeon fell with light and the chains fell off. Uh, The reason, I said, for all the various theories that have been proposed, in my opinion, is that we do not accept that we don't know everything God knows. I think that's the key. We don't know everything that God knows. And it bothers some people that the Lord knows who's going to be saved ahead of time. That's why Greg Boyd came up with God doesn't know the future. Because he didn't like it. Uh, So he wants to limit God's knowledge to make him emotionally feel better about Christianity. I've run into more than one person who's smart enough to create a theology to solve his or her own emotional issues. There's a lot of that. And I think it's only right that we don't go beyond what is written. What has God revealed? Furthermore, let me say this. This is going to come up in Ephesians. It comes up in Revelation. As the future eternal ages unfold, what we do know is this. Everything that God has done and will do and what we will continue to learn is always going to be to the praise of his glory. Always to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And somehow, even after the lake of fire and the judgment of Antichrist and so on, that Eric's been teaching about Revelation, what do we see in heaven? The multitudes are praising God. 
Nobody, after it's all done and they know more than we know now, they're not saying, well, why wasn't everybody saved? We prefer universalism because it makes us feel better. That's emergent. I wrote a book about that. I went debated somebody and went to their conference and talked to them face to face about what they believe. Their position is nobody can really know what the Bible means anyhow. So we have to create a theology from philosophy, and this is the one we like. Universalism. Heaven is going to come to earth without any future judgment. You can't know anything for sure, so let's just go with what sounds the best to us. That's human emotion determining theology. Because they passed Schaeffer's line of despair, so we can't know, we can't know, we can't know. Written language can't convey truth. God is so other, nobody can know what God's really like. Human words are inadequate. Languages can't be understood. There's a massive gap between us and the writers. Can't know, we can't know, we can't know. Wash your hands, give up. Oh, Hegel. Hegel can help us. Marx can help us. We'll find somebody to help us. So we can't know the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, but we can know that all contradictions are synthesizing into some better third option, the square circle. That's what goes on. Now, as a church, let's at least make this commitment. If it's possible to know what God said validly, is that and will that be sufficient to inform what we believe theologically? I I determined by God's grace for myself in 1983, that's the only way to go. Because otherwise the false teachers are going to destroy us. If we don't go by scripture alone, I don't know where we go. So there's all these theories and opinions. Universalism, hyper-Calvinism, semi-Pelagianism, which is the position of Rome and the position of most evangelicals in the 20th century, semi-Pelagianism. We're not wanting to be like Pelagius who said there's no sin in nature and man can become good by just having the right influences and help. But we don't want to believe in grace alone. So the semi-Pelagian view is man is fallen but not so bad that we can't give a little extra help with some prevenient grace. All right, let's keep going here. The reason for all the various theories is that we do not accept that we do not know everything God knows. Do you know whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life? Is there a database where you can access that? Okay. What is that one, 23andMe, if I know you answer this? Is it in Logos? <laughs> yeah, you just go so-and-so. It's tiny URL slash. Put a name in there. Oh, Lamb's Book of Life. We, we, we don't know. I think it's God's mercy that we don't know because we can't accept now knowledge that isn't meant for us now. But I'll say this to you. I'm comforted that they're rejoicing in heaven once they do know. I don't think we're going to be disappointed because we, the way we think now is filtered through our emotions that are still fallen in some ways. I'm not saying emotions aren't Valid, but they can't determine our theology. Let me read on in this answer. 
We do not know who will believe the gospel. God knows. We do not. If we were to prejudge and to think that only Jews would be good candidates, we would be wrong. There was a tendency to that, and that's one of the things Acts overcomes. They wanted Jerusalem to be the headquarters of the church. But Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, Samaria. They didn't want to go to Samaria, did they? Did they like the Samaritans? No. In the other most parts of the world. So there's more out there. God has others that haven't yet heard. If we thought that only people who seem nice to be nice people compared to others would be good candidates, we would be wrong. Sometimes people look, oh, they're so nice. They'd be a good Christian. We'd be wrong. Nobody would be a good Christian based on being in Adam. We're Christians only when we were in Christ. No, I had common graces. Yeah, I have nice neighbors over the years. I've had some not so nice over the years. But it doesn't determine who's going to be a Christian. Are you following me? If we think that only people from some countries and not others would be Christian, we would be wrong. All people literally are people who may believe. God knows those who are his, but this is not publicly revealed. I'm just reading something I wrote to some people who asked. The Lamb's Book of Life is not here for us to read. He's the savior of all people in the sense that no one is excluded or ruled out based on anything. Are we agreeing so far? We're not ruling anybody out based on ethnicity, niceness, anything. Country of origin, none of that matters, only Christ. But all will not be saved, I say in this email. So we must preach to all, and those who believe are saved. There may be some who heard this preaching for years and then come to faith. I've seen that happen. I've seen people sit in church and hear the gospel, hear the gospel, hear the gospel. Doesn't sink in. And one day, I've had this happen a lot. Say, the light went on. They come and tell me, the light went on. I never got it. I sat there for years, never got it. Now I know I was lost and I was in darkness and now I know that God has forgiven my sins. That's what God does. Suddenly the light goes on and the person who's been sitting in church comes to life. Praise God. That's why we preach the gospel to the church. Yes, brother. Just to emphasize that, and I know we're running out of time, it's, it's like can, they can hear God's word over and over and over, but on that day, on that moment, the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit and the word of God together, right? Well, let's use the analogy we're learning in Acts, so I give full circle back to Acts. Peter was in jail for a while before the angel showed up, right? Every, every sinner's been in jail for their whole life. How do you know when the light's going to go on? You don't. So that's why we preach Christ. Jesus Christ when we preach Christ, we tell people he is the creator, the second person of the Trinity, eternal God. He's not just a religious leader. We tell them that he was born of a virgin, miraculously, and that 
prophecy was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus the Messiah. We tell them that he lived a sinless life. Nobody else did. We tell them that he literally predicted his own crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and ascension into heaven, and he pulled it off. Nobody's ever done that. We tell them that he died a propitious death. His blood was shed to wash away sins. Anybody's sins will come to Christ and call on him. When Paul did taught some very strong things about God's purposes, he turns around in Romans 10 and said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's not excluding anybody. Uh, and we call people to repent and believe the gospel. That those who turn by God's grace to Christ and believe in him and trust in him alone, not religion, not works, not anything else, only Christ, are saved. And that what we're saved from is the wrath of God against sin. And that the gift of God is eternal life. And though those who are saved, if they're alive when the rapture happens, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Those who die before them go immediately to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Today, repent and believe the gospel. And if you want to go to the seminary library and debate with your friends about limited atonement, have at it. <laughs> but I, I'm just going to preach to everybody. Yes, uh, here comes the mic. We've got about two minutes here. Uh, Bob, if you can help me how I can respond to... Um a friend of mine that is Catholic, and he goes to Bible study, and I debate him back and forth uh, about some uh, things in the Bible, and here's one that helped me give him an answer. He says to me, well, did you read in the Bible for there is one God? How do I respond to him? That there's one God? Yeah, you know, here, he, he has quoted to me, he says, well, if you're reading the Bible, did you read in there for there is one God? Well, I, yes. I, I feel We different. believe that. Yeah. And, and, and see, we, and that's really one of the few things that official Catholic dogma is that there's one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So one of the things we can agree with, okay? So the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't play around with monotheism in any way. The eternal God of the Bible is the triune God, but there's one God. And so sometimes what Eric and I say, I know I say this, the triune God of the Bible, so that we're not confused. Because Islam will claim they say there's one God, but their version of God doesn't have the characteristics of the God of the Bible. Okay? So by believing the Trinity, believe, there is one God. Now, where we differ with the Roman Catholics is on the issue of salvation, okay, and the authority of what's, what's the authority. So the solas, sola means alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, were proclaimed and the Council of Trent was written as a counter-reformation to say, anathema, 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 anathema. They'll say grace is fine. But if you say alone, 
Now you got to go to hell. Now, here's the deal. Modern Catholics don't even know that the church ever said that. Now they're doubting there's a hell. Now they're thinking everybody's okay. Now they want to make peace with the Muslims. But here's their dilemma. All of the creeds and councils have been claimed to be the very authoritative word of God because the church spoke. Yeah, their church. So the Pope spoke at Cathedra. It's from God. The Council of Trent, they can't go back and say, no, we don't believe it. We renounce it. Because then they'd be uh, renouncing something that God already said. So I got the latest Catholic um, catechism some years ago, and it's just a bunch of contradictions. It's almost emergent. We believe this, 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 but then turn around and believe this, this, and this. That contradicts all those other things. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, but Rome does. Okay, so it's pretty, uh, some of you came out of Roman Catholicism, didn't you? Isn't that true? They, they don't know what they believe. Just do what they tell you to do, and it'll all be right. Go ahead, and then we got to close. Jim, I just wanted to point out that it's not a contradiction believing in one God and also the Trinity, because we're not, we're not saying that there's one God and three gods at the same time in the same relationship. What we're sure. saying is that there's one God in three persons. So think of it this way. We have one government in three branches. We're not saying that we have one government and three governments at the same time in the same relationship. So it's not a contradiction to have one God in three persons. It would be a contradiction to say we have one God and three gods at the same time in the same relationship. Yep. So that may be where the confusion lies, perhaps, in that statement. Yeah, so. that's a good answer. Yeah, that's a very good answer. Well, that's that, what I should tell them. Yeah, we believe in the triune God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The God is one, and he's eternally existed. Because it says, for example... That the Word was the Creator. The Word is Christ. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Well, we gotta, we're gone over time. I'm going to pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your kindness and your grace and mercy. Thank you for revealing salvation and calling all to come to believe in you. And we pray that today even more will do so. Thank you for your goodness. And we pray that you'd be with everyone that participates in the service that we're about to have upstairs in Jesus' name. Amen.